All right, well, again, welcome. Um, my name is Aaron. I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm one of the leaders at Trailhead, and uh, I'm going to be sharing with you this morning from the book of Acts. So if you would, uh, grab your Bible and open up to the book of Acts, chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one somewhere near you um, that you can grab and read through this passage with us. It's kind of a long passage, so we're going to start by reading through the whole thing this morning, and then we're going to go back and reference it as we go along. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles, we're on page one, uh, page, excuse me, 928, 928. And so, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Here we go. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, 
Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. All right, so um, that's a pretty long passage, but um, we're going to go through it today because I think you're going to see some common themes running through the whole thing. But I'm going to start this morning with a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's also, I'm going to tell you, it's a trick question. Okay, I tell you it's a trick question because when somebody asks me a trick question and then I, I answer it and I get tricked by it, I just feel like an idiot. And so my goal is not for you to feel stupid, okay? So I'm telling you up front, this is a trick question, okay? Which probably takes away all um, the purpose of asking a trick question in the first place if you tell people it's a trick question. So um, forgive me. All right, um, but you won't feel like an idiot. I will, but that's okay. All right, um, here's the question. It's three questions. Where, that wasn't, that's not the tricky part. It's just, it's one question phrased three different ways. We'll say that. All right, here's the question. Where does faith fit into your life? Okay, how do you work Jesus into your schedule? Or what role does the gospel play in your week? Okay, so as you're thinking about that, how does, how does God fit into your life? Here's, here's the, the, why that's, I call that a trick question. In the New Testament, when we look at um, Christianity from the beginning, from its very roots, it wasn't something that fit into people's lives. It wasn't a part of their week. When we look at the earliest believers, the earliest Christians, when, um, the, the, the earliest followers of Jesus, it wasn't something that, that played a role in their lives. It totally and completely transformed their lives. If you were a Christian... In, in the first century, if you were, and, and they didn't even call themselves Christians, and you see this in this passage this morning, um, and throughout the book of Acts, they, they were called followers of the way. If you were a follower of the way, there was no question of, like, where you were going to fit that in. That was a part of, that was who you were. And it changed who you were. It transformed you. Today, um, we seem to expect way, way less out of faith, out of Christianity. We, we seem to think of it oftentimes as something that we can take in. We've got our lives and we're going along in our way, and this is something we're going to fit in with the rest of our lives. It's, we're going to slot it into a, a, a scheduled place in our week. We'll fit it in if we can, or, or we, we add it on to what we're already doing but the way, the way, that was unintended, but the way it's talked about in the New Testament is, is totally different. 
totally different. That it wasn't something you would add on. It wasn't something that you'd try to incorporate somehow into your life. It took over. It became your, you became something or someone different by following Jesus. And sometimes that came at a great, great cost. So here's what I want to put forward today, and you can agree or disagree, or, or we're going to look through this passage and see if you, if you think I'm on the right track or not, but I think it's possible, very, very possible, and I think the New Testament would agree with this, that truly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and truly having faith still today will transform your life, can transform. I mean, let me, let me put it this way. True faith will transform you. But sometimes it will happen at what we would view as a great cost. And then, this is kind of the outline, I guess, in a way, because where we'll end up is that cost is, is totally worth it. As much as it might seem to us at the outset like this is something that is taking something away from me, that actually faith in Jesus Christ is going to give us something and something unexpected, but something so much greater than anything it could take from us. Let's look at this passage together, um, and and I hope you'll see kind of where I'm headed with all of this and why I I say those things. Um, We've been working our way through the book of Acts for quite a while now, and um, as we come to this place um, in the scripture, Paul and when, when this starts out, is still in Ephesus. If you were here last week, that's kind of where he was at the time. And so he's still there, and he's doing some amazing stuff. Um, actually, the way the text phrases it is probably the way we should say it. God was doing some amazing stuff through the hands of Paul. So God's working through Paul, and he's doing incredible miracles in just outrageous ways, ways that um, to us, honestly, looking at it today, it's like that's like he had a handkerchief and people took his handkerchief and it healed them. And that's like, sounds like the thing you might see on one of the higher numbered cable stations that you can send in some money. But that's not what it was. It's genuinely, God is doing amazing miracles to kind of go forward ahead of Paul so that when Paul tells people who Jesus is and what he's done, that, that he's kind of got this confirmation by what he's doing miraculously. And people are amazed by it to the degree where so there's these, this group, at least several groups of, of these, what the text calls this itinerant Jewish exorcists, people who are going around trying to make money by traveling from town to town, casting out demons. Um, and they see what's going on, and they see that Paul is doing these incredible miracles, and he's doing them in the name of Jesus. And in their minds, he's got like this sort of magic formula, so these magic words he's saying. Jesus is like the magic words. And they're like, hey, we could use that. Let's use his spell. We'll cast out the demons using the words he uses. And so it talks specifically here, there's these seven sons um, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. And so they get this idea like, we're going to do what Paul's doing. So they find this guy who's demon-possessed, and they try using the right magic words. They use the name of Jesus. And they say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. And the demon-possessed guy has the, one of the best lines um, 
that a demon-possessed guy has ever spoken, which is a big list, but this one ranks at the top. And he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then he beats him up. All seven of them. One on seven, he destroys them, and he kicks them out of the house. And people hear about this because seven naked men went running, beat up out of a house, and so that story gets around. And everybody's like, whoa, this is crazy. Something big, something amazing, something is going on right now. Paul is doing amazing miracles. Other people are trying to do them and they can't, so there's something different going on. Something big is happening. Powerful, powerful stuff is going on. And so there's a whole bunch of people in Ephesus who have been practicing magic, who have believed the gospel, and suddenly they see kind of this conflict here between their former lives, and and if you think about and what we know about magic, and it's probably pretty... um, you know, partial of what this would have actually looked like. But in a certain sense, what they were doing was very similar to what these seven brothers were trying to pull off. I mean, basically, they're trying to use certain words in certain ways to get some supernatural result to happen. And it totally blew up in their faces. And so here's these believers, and they're like, we believe that Jesus really is God, and he's really done something in our lives. And and it doesn't mesh with what we've been doing, and we've got all these books, and we've got all this stuff that we've been trying to to follow our own way and get power for ourselves from this, and it doesn't fit. And so they're like, we can't do this. We can't do both. We've got to decide. And so they gather together all their magic books. They bring them out, and they have this huge bonfire. And we, we need to just pause real quickly and say, because when we talk about burning books, there's this immediate like Fahrenheit 451 thing that goes off in our heads. And this is not like, we're not talking about like censorship or states, books are evil or anything like that. This was just their way of saying, this is our old life. This is our new life. They don't go together. And so we're going to very publicly and very clearly And at a very great cost to themselves, because they counted up how much all those books would have cost. And it's 50,000 pieces of silver. Paul's a little vague when he says pieces of silver. Um, Most most biblical commentators believe this would be what was called a drachma, which was like a day's wages. So 50,000 days worth of earnings. Books burnt. As a way of saying, we're done with that. It's over, that's our old life, and we're not going back. Clean break. And then he says in verse 20, um, Luke, who's writing this, says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I love that he uses the word prevail because it's the idea that, look, there's a battle going on here. There's a battle going on um, between the, the, the forces of darkness, this man who's possessed by a demon, There's a battle between those forces and and God and the force of of good, of goodness, of of holiness in the world. That's a battle. But there's also this battle going on within people's hearts between believing the gospel and being pulled toward their former way of life. And within all those battles, he says, and the Lord prevailed mightily because God is more powerful than any of those other forces. So if you have a giant bonfire 
in which you burn 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books, people might notice. And that's what happens. And so this guy named Demetrius, who lives in Ephesus, and he's a silversmith, and his job as a silversmith is that he makes shrines or, or statues or um, just, just personal um, talismans of Artemis. Artemis was a goddess. Do you have my picture of Artemis? Go to that first slide there. There she is. Okay, this is Artemis. Artemis was a goddess. Um, the Romans referred to her as Diana. Um, but Artemis was, like, she was like the, um, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but the goddess of Ephesus. Like, they identified with her. She was their protector goddess. And, and so Artemis made statues of her to, to sell to people who worshipped her. And they would buy these, and they would use these in their worship of her. Um, and so this would have been, like, the kind of thing he would have made. And it made him money. It was his job. Okay, this was how he made his living. And it occurs to him that if everybody's giving up their old way of life and being changed and following now the, the new way, and they use very much the word, the term, the way, and they're following Jesus, that they're not really going to want his Artemis statues so much anymore. His trade is threatened by what's going on. Because if everybody come, becomes a believer in Jesus and they're not willing to like worship Jesus but also worship Artemis, if they're only going to worship him, then they're not going to want to buy his statues. So he pulls together some other craftsmen, some other people who have similar jobs, whose jobs in some way revolve around worship of Artemis. And he says, look, we've got a problem here. Because this thing's coming in, and it's changing everybody, and we're going to lose our jobs. And then he takes it a step further. He goes, it's more than just our jobs. This is who we are. This is Ephesus. Ephesus is Artemis. They go together. In fact, um, if you're familiar at all with the, the, the concept of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I know most of you probably could just rattle those off like that, but... Um, I didn't know this. I just found this out. But one of those seven was the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which was this huge, magnificent, glorious, beautiful temple built for worship of their goddess. Their, their city, their identity as a city revolved around Artemis. So Demetrius pulls these guys together and he goes, look, this is our job, but it's also who we are. This is our identity. This is our culture. And it's being threatened here. And if we let this continue, if this Jesus thing keeps spreading, everything about our city is in, in, in danger. And they agree. And they get fired up. And they start chanting about Artemis. And they go out and they start finding some of the leaders of the way, some of the people who are, in their eyes, guilty of telling people about Jesus, and they drag them into the theater. The theater in Ephesus was also huge. Sorry, I don't have a picture on this one. But it was like seated like 25,000 people. So this was a huge, this was the cultural epicenter as far as like for um, any kind of events, public speaking, anything like that. And they pull them into the theater. And so 
huge, massive crowd. It's so big, the crowd just snowballs to a point, and I, again, I love this, that half the people there don't even know why they're there. They're all just chanting like, Artemis, Artemis, like, why are we here? I don't know Artemis, you know, but they're all just fired up, and, and they're all just like, they're going to kill somebody, or they're going to throw somebody out of the city. They're going to some, they don't even know what they're going to do. And they try to get this guy named Alexander to get up front and, and speak, but they realize he's not an Ephesian. He's not one of them. And so they just start chanting and chanting about Artemis to, to shut him up as well. And finally, the town clerk gets up. Now, the town clerk in that day would have been a pretty high-ranking official. So this is a pretty high Ephesian official. And he gets up, and he basically offers to them um, what we would refer to today as uh, kind of like a compromise. So look, everybody's all fired up, okay? If there's like actually some legal problem here, let's, let's take it to the courts, but we don't want to riot, okay? Like, that would be bad. We'd be in big trouble. So let's look at it this way, okay? There's Jesus, and some of these people like Jesus, okay. And we've got Artemis, and we like Artemis. We can coexist, right? We can have, they can have Jesus, and we can have Artemis. Maybe you could even have both, because in, in, from the town clerk's perspective, here's what he's saying. He's like, there's nothing about Jesus that says you can't worship Artemis, right? There's nothing about Artemis that says you, look, it's all good. We refer to this, the, the word we would use for this today is syncretism, which is the idea that we can take multiple faiths and multiple religions and, and just kind of blend them together, come out with something that's maybe a little different, but it protects everybody and keeps everybody all um, happy. Nobody's offended and, and Nobody gets left out. And he calms everybody down, and they just kind of go on their way. <clears throat> now, as we go through that story, I think, I hope, and it's pretty obvious, the impact that the gospel has on the people who have believed it, but not just the people who believe the gospel, but on the whole culture as a whole. Like, when the gospel came into the city of Ephesus, that place was changed. It was transformed. And we'd have to say, and, and all apologies to the, the, the town clerk, um, but in the end, he wasn't really right. It didn't really work out that way. Um, you can't really, and this is, this is what we see, okay? The gospel transforms people. And in the this, in this story, it transforms people and it transforms cultures. Not because, look, look, the town, the city of Ephesus is not changed because the people who were Christians gained a majority and then enacted new laws to impose their views on the rest of the city. Okay, that's not what happened. The, the gospel didn't transform Ephesus because the followers of the way decided that Artemis worship and magic were bad, and so they went on a campaign to tell other people to stop doing it. Okay, do you notice that in here? The gospel transforms the city of Ephesus because it transforms individual people. And as those individual people are transformed, they are a part of a city, and the city is transformed by them being personally 
transformed. And they're transformed, they're changed because the gospel does for them what it does for us still today, which is this, and this is kind of the main point. The gospel tells us that Jesus is Lord exclusively, and you cannot worship him and any other God. Now that was controversial, obviously, we see in that day. It's still controversial today, but it's still just as true. If Jesus is God and you're going to worship him, then you can't worship anyone or anything else. And when the gospel works its way into our hearts, it challenges our idols and our false gods. Now, you see this clearly here with Jesus and Artemis, and, and it's pretty simple to see why that doesn't work out. If Jesus really is who he said he was, then trying to fit him in with worshiping a, a, a made-up pretend um, goddess who supposedly did these things but never actually existed, it doesn't mesh together. But for us today, that's a little bit harder to make the connection because most of you, I'm going to go out on a limb, I don't know this factually, but most of you are not struggling between should I worship Jesus or Artemis. Um, No offense if you are, I shouldn't have said that. Um, But in our own hearts, we still actually fight the same battle between the idols and the gods we want to worship and Jesus, who we also want to worship, but, but it, it, there's, there's a conflict. Now, here's the thing. Our, our false gods, our idols, are a little more subtle. Most of us don't have totems of our false gods in our houses. Um, they don't have Greek or Roman names. But we all have the things that we worship, apart from God, the things that we give value to, the things that we trust in to give us blessings or goodness or to make us happy. And we worship them, we give them value, we give them worth, we talk about them, we we shape our lives around them. Just as much as, if not more so than, uh, the Ephesians in their day did around Artemis. But it just, it looks different. We, we try to be syncretists. We have our idols, we have our false gods. I'll, I'll get to what that means in a second. And, and we say we, we can have those and Jesus too. We can worship our false gods and cling to those idols and Jesus and we'll just try to mesh them together and make it all work. What am I talking about? Well, I'm going to give you one example because it's so blatant throughout this whole story. Um, I would argue even more so than Artemis in this passage. But whereas Artemis, none of us at all today think about or give two thoughts to, um, this one, this one hits most of us pretty close to home. And it's It's money. We would not ever say we worship money. 
okay? Um, in fact, we would, we would say the exact opposite. But, well, let me pause. Look at this story. Look how much money is driving this story. Look how much the love of money, the desire for money is driving this story. The exorcists, these itinerant exorcists, this is their job as they're making money off of trying to cast out demons. And they have this plan that they can make more money by co-opting the name of Jesus. We can take Jesus and, and his name and use him, leverage him for our own personal financial gain. And we see that. We see that today. That there are people who are happy to, in whatever way they can, use the idea of Christianity, the name of Christianity, to gain for themselves power or influence or specifically money and financial gain. But it does not work. The power of God is not a a commodity. It's not a resource for us to use for our own personal benefit. Uh, Money is driving Demetrius. And it's interesting, and you can't tell from the way he talks. I mean, it's it's almost 50-50, but it sounds a lot like his real concern is his job. And the whole thing about the city and, and our national identity, or our civic identity, is, is more of a rallying cry to whip people up to hide his true concern, which is his job. And then there's the believers who sacrificed what would probably be today not an exaggeration to say millions of dollars worth of books as a way to very clearly say a great personal financial cost to them. We've changed. We're no longer worshiping this, we're worshiping him. But there is a financial cost. Demetrius, the exorcist, they're worshiping money. What about us? Let me, let me ask you a question. This one's not a trick question, okay? So this one, you have to be honest with yourself and um, think about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you two statements, okay? I want you to think, which of these two statements would bother you more Which of these, let me me phrase it differently, which one would have a greater impact on your life if it were true? If I said this to you and it was actually 100% you knew this this was a true statement, which of these two statements would change your life more? There is no God or you have no money. Which of those things practically in your life would make a bigger impact on the way you live from day to day? So here's the question. Who or what are you really trusting in? Not just what do you say, not just, you know, the, the, oh, I trust in Jesus, I'm a believer, I follow him. I'm... When it comes down to it, at the core, at the base of it all, Where have you placed your faith and your trust in your life, for your life? Have we, is it possible that we, 
as, who call ourselves believers, who say that we're trusting in Jesus Christ to, to save us, to, to bring us from death to life, to, to give us a future and a hope beyond this life, and yet in this life, we're trusting more in our own personal finances than we are in Him to give us security and to give us comfort and ultimately to give us happiness. How often, how often have we convinced ourselves, do we convince ourselves to not follow where God is leading us because of what the financial impact would be in our lives. Because we have set up, we have a budget, we have a a plan, we have desires, we have needs, and we have finances that we think are going to get us there, or we have ways of gaining more money, and we need more money. And if we followed where we believe God is calling us to go, it would forfeit in some way our financial or material wealth, our possessions, And so we convince ourselves, and we're good at it, I mean, we're really good at this, of working our way into believing that, and here's the word we, Christians, here's the word Christians use a lot, to to, to trust in money over God, we use the word wisdom, which is a great word, um, because it's a biblical word, and um, so we try to find, like, maybe a a verse from Proverbs, and we, we have our wisdom of why we need to trust in our money and we need to be so financially secure that we're not actually going to follow what God's calling us to do. Whatever that might be, maybe it's giving more sacrificially um, to the mission of God through this church locally. Maybe it's something um, more global. Maybe it's sacrificing um, your time in a way that might possibly cut back on your hours at work or it's, it was going to somehow conflict with, with advancing in your career in some way. Maybe whatever it is financially that we see that if I go what I believe God, do what I believe God's calling me to do financially, it's going to create problems. And so I can construct in my mind, but I have to be wise and wisdom is this catch-all word that we use to mean that I, I, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to trust in money and finances and material possessions to take care of me, to provide me with security, to give me peace. Peace, security, comfort, those are all things that should come and can come from Jesus. And we so, so often try to find them in our stuff. And here's the problem with that. If you are living that way, most of us are, okay, so it's not like um, a secret. (laughs) When you're living that way, when your faith, when your trust, when your hope is invested in your finances— It's miserable. You hate it. You you don't enjoy 
serving and worshiping a false god. False gods are terrible, terrible masters. And money is no different. Because there's never enough, right? There's never... (laughs) We all have this mythical line or this mythical amount in our heads. If I just had this much, or if I just made this much, and the problem with the line is it moves... You will never, ever, and you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know from your own personal experience. You will never have enough money to be happy if money is what you're seeking to make you happy. Because it's a false God. It offers and it promises more than it can deliver. when you live your life and give your life to try to please the false god of financial security, you will be exhausted, you will be stressed, and you will always, always be hoping that someday it's going to come through and deliver for you. But it never, ever, ever Now contrast that with Jesus. And look, this is the the point of this. When we say that you can't serve both God and money, you can't worship Jesus and a false God, it's not because... There are places in the Bible where God refers to himself as a jealous God, and he tells us to worship only him. Okay, and that's true. But I want you to see that he does that for our own good. That the reason... You should worship Jesus instead of worshiping money. It's not out of fear of what God's going to do to you. It's out of an understanding that Jesus is so much better. So much better. And what he has to offer to you is so much more comforting. It's so much more security. It's so much more life-giving than the false promises of all of our false gods. Jesus is real. Jesus is powerful. Jesus can withstand and sustain all of your needs and truly provide them for you. Now, when I say that, as I say that, I'm sure things spring to mind, yeah, but what if I miss out on this? Or I know Christians who, this, and they have these financial problems, and this, that. Jesus provides for us in a different way, but in a much, much better way. That the comfort he gives to our souls, that the life he breathes into us is so much more fulfilling than money. And sometimes, look, when we're trusting in in Christ, when we're following God, we do go through difficult times. And not just financially, I mean financially, yes. But health issues as well, relational problems as well, inter, in, in, intrapersonal problems as well. I mean, all of it. But God gives us the strength to go through them instead of a false promise of keeping us from them.
The offer from Jesus in trusting in him and worshiping him is that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe who created all of this, who is so powerful. So powerful that as we look at this passage that when he works, people are full of fear of what he can do. And we're offered a relationship with him through trusting in what Christ did for us and taking our sin on himself and dying in our place to reconcile us to God. He is more worthy of your trust than any material thing you could imagine. The ultimate security that you can have is found in him and in what he did for you. Why would we? It's insane. Like, literally makes no sense that we who believe that's true would rather have temporary, what we would consider security in what is so completely and totally insecure, our financial and material goods. Jesus offers us everlasting life We're like, yeah, but I could have a really nice house. I could get a newer car. I could impress people. People could look at me. And and whatever money does for you, whatever it is that it, it fulfills, that you think it fulfills in you, whether it's status or it's a symbol of success or it gives you security or comfort or whatever that thing may be, let me, let me illustrate this. Um, Let me show you the temple of Artemis in Ephesus today. Demetrius was worried that if the gospel spread too much through Ephesus, that people would stop worshiping Artemis. And they had this beautiful, amazing, this gorgeous temple. It was a wonder of the world. And everybody would look at Ephesus and say, How great is Ephesus? Look at that amazing temple. There's where it is today. What have you purchased that you think is going to last better than that? That's going to go on longer, outlive the temple of Artemis? Because it's done. It's ruins. Most of the stuff you have is going to end up in a garage sale. The stuff that's making, that's going to make you so happy today, you're going to forget you ever even owned it. That savings account, you're going to die. Your kids are going to fight over it. That's where it's headed. Nothing that you're trusting in on this earth is going to last. When we, we try to get really, we talk about wisdom and we try to get really, I'm looking forward. I'm planning for the future. Let me tell you the future. You're going to die. Nothing you have is going to live a hundred years from now, is going to exist five hundred years from now. 
If it does, it might be in, an, in a museum somewhere. You're not going to be enjoying it. And yet, and yet, we put our trust in that. And we follow after that. Instead of Jesus, who's offering us life beyond life. And within this life, a security and a peace of knowing that he is with us, and he is guiding us, and he is taking care of us, and he is strengthening us. And we go, yeah, I'm going to go for the new car. So here's a, a, a question just to get you thinking. What would it look like for you to trust more deeply in Jesus than in your material goods? What would that, I mean, like I said, we all say it. What would it actually in practice look like? Look at what it looked like for these believers in Ephesus. They had a whole bunch of really expensive books. I'm going to guess that each one of those books, when they bought them and spent a, a day's worth of wages, which is no small change, okay? When they bought each of those books, there was a rush, there was a thrill, there was that when you get something new and something you've wanted, and look, I'll just be honest, for me it is book, I'm a, I'm a nerd, a book nerd, um, and when I get a new book, I get really excited, um, I shouldn't say that in public, but um, like, the thrill that you get, so for you it's something else I'm sure, but the thrill you got when you bought your first car or your new house or your... Um, Xbox or whatever it is, that it was like, this is the thing. And I've waited and waited. But that was each one of these books for them was, this is awesome. This is it. This is going to change my life. This is finally going to be the thing that makes me happy. And they bought it. And they maybe used it. They read it cover to cover. It didn't work. It didn't change their lives. I know it didn't because then they became believers in Jesus, which they wouldn't have done if the magic was working for them. And now they come to this decision point and they're like, I got to decide here. And this book, which was so meaningful and so important and so the thing in my life, I'm going to burn it. I am not suggesting today that we should have a mass book burning. I don't know if the city of Edwardsville would smile on that, for one. Um, number two, for most of us, it's probably not books. And let's, like I said, the, the, the idea here was not that there was something evil that needed to be wiped out by burning it. The idea was that symbolically they were saying, I am making a break. I'm saying that this old life that I thought was going to make me happy is not... And I'm turning completely and totally to Jesus here, and I'm breaking with the old. And so here's my question. Is there anything in your life, any practice, any possession, anything that is a part of an old life that you need to metaphorically, I'm underlining metaphorically, burn? That you need to make a clean break.
That thing that, that you've tried to say, I can do this and Jesus. I can put these two things together. I can worship them both. I can trust in both of them. What would it look like? This is the question. What would it look like for you to have that clean break? What would it look like for you to say, I'm trusting, I'm worshiping solely and completely Jesus? And these other things, and so look, here's the thing about stuff. There's nothing on its own wrong with it, okay? Houses aren't evil. Cars aren't evil. Food, clothing, books, Xboxes, stuff. It's not evil. Vacations aren't evil. It's when we worship them and trust in them. Money on its own is not evil. It's when we trust in and worship it and it over Jesus that it becomes a problem. Here's what you find when you trust in Jesus, when you're leaning on him to be your security, to be your comfort. Those other things are much more enjoyable. When you're not placing on them the weight of giving you eternal joy and happiness, they're kind of fun. It's kind of nice to have a nice house, to drive a nice car. When it's not the sole determiner of who you are, when it's not the thing that's going to make you happy, Jesus is not an accessory that we can attach to our lives. He's not something we can add in. He's not, the way the Ephesians or or so many cultures throughout time have looked at him, another God to add to our pantheon of gods. And we'll just worship him right alongside all the others. He claims to be, and if you take him at his word, then he is the one and only true God. Which is really good news, because there's no other God in the world that can compare to him. We're going to take some time, we're going to put some questions for reflection up on the screen. And then we're going to share communion together. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. God, you are so good to us. And we deserve it absolutely zero. We run after false God, after false God, after false God. We construct for ourselves ideas of what will make us happy, and it never fails to let us down. And yet you pursue us and you love us, and you extend your grace to us. So we thank you. And God, I pray that today you will transform our hearts. Open our eyes to see you, and the greatness of you, and the goodness of you, and the beauty of you, and how it dwarfs anything that money could buy, anything that we could achieve, anything that we could earn on our own. And help us to more deeply trust in you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.